0: But so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you don't have a Bible, you will absolutely need one today. So Scott and Dan are walking around with Bibles. I know I say this every week. I mean, even more this week. You will really need a Bible. Just lift up your hand. Uh, they'll bring it to you, and if you don't own a Bible, uh, that is for you to keep. We love to give away copies of God's Word, so just lift up your hand if you need a Bible, and they'll bring it to you. Well, if memory serves correctly, uh, we started Jacobswell Church, I think, on Palm Sunday, if not on a Palm Sunday, the Sunday before, 13 years ago, and so for 13 years we have been looking at the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday. Probably some of them twice or three times. And so today I wanted to do something just a little bit different, and that I wanted to look at the background or the prequel to Palm Sunday. Now, if you are into movies, you know what a prequel is. A prequel is a movie that comes out uh, that tells stories that precede a previous movie that came out. I think you know what I'm talking about. But but there are several very famous prequels out there. So there are prequels to the Star Wars movies, uh, prequels to uh, Lord of the Rings, even to Shrek. Probably my favorite prequel uh, is Batman. So in 1989, the original Batman, at least the original one of my generation, came out, and it was fantastic. That's why there's like roller coasters named Batman and stuff like that. A few years later, came out, Uh, Another movie, Batman Returns. And then another few years later came out another Batman movie, which is Batman Forever. So you're thinking this is the last movie because it's Batman Forever, right? But you would be wrong. Uh, About 10 years later, they came out with another movie called Batman Begins. And so it went back to Batman's childhood and uh, kind of his high school uh, years uh, after that, young adult years, and shows how he gets his karate training, why the bat is such an important figure to him. And the prequel is a great movie in and of itself, but it also provides a lot of uh, texture and taste to the other movies that I'd already seen. In the same way, today we're going to be looking at the prequel uh, to Zachar, to I'm sorry, to the triumphal entry, also known as Palm Sunday, and it is in the book of Zechariah. And so, if you want to turn there at this time, uh, we're going to start in Zechariah chapter one. We're going to be flipping through the Bible a lot today, but it's in page 793 of the Red Bible. So, if you want open up to page 793. As we go through the Bible today, the page numbers on the screen are correct. You can look up there. If you have a red Bible, if you have your own Bible, I don't know what page number it is, but but for the red Bible, it'll be right up there. Now, as you turn there, let me give it a bit of a prequel to the prequel. Uh, Let me give you the background to the book of Zechariah. So for the nation of Israel, kind of their golden age uh, was around 1000 BC with King David. And after King David, there was King Solomon, and it went well for a while. Uh, And then it started to go downhill quickly, and the kingdom divided. And they were marked by very corrupt kings uh, that had rebelled against God, uh, who turned away from the Lord. And so, for hundreds of years, God, by his grace and mercy, had called out to the kings to repent and to return to the Lord. But they didn't, they continued really destructive, uh, sinful patterns. And so the Lord, as he had warned them, brought judgment and discipline upon them through the nations around them. So first was the Assyrian Empire, which in 722 BC started to conquer the northern part of Israel. And then for the next 150 years, uh, the conquest continued further south, uh, continued through the Babylonian Empire. And so in 586 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, on his third attempt, conquered Jerusalem. And when he conquered Jerusalem, uh, he didn't just, you know, leave it as is. He destroyed it like a tornado. Uh, the temple was, was wrecked. The, wall, the walls were wrecked around the, the city. Uh, the city was wrecked. And then he took a lot of the survivors and led them on a trail of tears to the outskirts of the empire uh, to diffuse any sort of power or identity that they might have. To give you maybe an illustration of what it would be like for us, it would be as if someone came in, completely wiped out Washington, D.C., took down the White House, took down the government buildings, and then took the survivors and led them walking a trail tears to central Mexico to go to some place that they know nothing about. And so that's kind of what's going on. And so Israel was in a really devastated state. But then 50 years later, the Persian empire comes in and conquers the Babylonians and King Cyrus issues a decree allowing a remnant of the Jews throughout the empire to come back and to build Jerusalem. And so they come back and they're very excited and they start to rebuild the temple, but then they meet ferocious opposition from the people who have filled in that land while they were in exile. And so the the building of the temple stops, they're very discouraged, they're very sad, Uh, they don't know what to do, and they feel like God's promises are failing them. And so Zechariah is written to encourage them to not give up the work that God has called them to, because God's promises will come true. But in the midst of it, they are very, very saddened by the brokenness of living in a wasteland that had the former glory of Israel. And then we get to Zechariah 1:12. If you would look there at verse 12 with me, and then we'll pray and we'll cover the rest of the passage in a little bit. There's an alert? Are we good? Okay. Sounds like just one. Zechariah 1, verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years. Let's pray. Lord God, as we consider the backstory of this Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry, may we hope afresh in the good news of the King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week was a very heavy and sad week for me, as well as for many of you. Um, It started on Monday Monday with the news coming out of Nashville of uh, a church school that had been attacked, and um, as I saw the news, I was just heartbroken for brothers and sisters in Christ and families that were going through this, but as I heard more of the news, I realized that this is a sister church from our denomination, and as I gathered more news, I realized that many of my seminary classmates uh, in my class had children at this school. And as I gathered more information, I found out that the pastor was actually one of my classmates in seminary. And so it was a day of weeping and grieving, especially ultimately finding out that his daughter was one of the victims. It was a very sad start to the week, but that was only Monday. The week continues with stories of broken marriages, broken families, broken judicial system. If that's not bad enough, families having to make end of life decisions. And another family who I care very deeply about found out, surprisingly, that the child in the womb is not going to make it. In weeks like these, I find myself echoing the question of the angel O Lord of hosts, how long? How long, O Lord? Will we have to suffer in the brokenness of this world? How long will families be fractured? How long will the young be slain? How long, O oh Lord? The people of God in Zechariah's day were asking the same question How long, O oh Lord, will we be oppressed? How long, O oh Lord, will we be harassed? How long, O oh Lord, will we be suffering? I'm guessing many of you come here today out of your brokenness and say, How long, O oh Lord, is this going to happen? And so the angel asks this question, and the Lord responds in verse 13 through 17. Look there with me. Zechariah chapter 1 still says, And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. In other words, shout this out to the people in Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. In other words, I have not forgot you. I love you. Verse 15, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease because they've conquered Israel. For while I was angry, but a while, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, and then here's the hope, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, keep building, it's gonna happen. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So not only will the temple be rebuilt, but Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Verse 17, cry out again, shout out to the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Throughout Zechariah, the prophet the Lord, through the prophet, is encouraging Jerusalem, saying, I know it's broken. I know it's messy. I know there are ashes that you are living in, but keep going because good things are about to come. We see this in Zechariah chapters one through six. The Lord gives these visions to Zechariah that he communicates to the people, letting them know that the Lord is patrolling the earth, bringing justice to the nations who have oppressed Israel and restoring the city of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem And the worship of Jerusalem. Then we get to chapter seven, and it calls Jerusalem to no longer weep, but to celebrate; to no longer fast, but to feast, because the Lord is bringing restoration. And then we get to chapter eight, and it tells of the coming peace and prosperity to Jerusalem. That probably seems like a distant dream to these, to this remnant. And it says that there will be old men and old women once again sitting in the streets and talking, and there will be children playing in the streets. And then at the end of chapter 8, there's this great reversal that God promises. He says, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. And he says, taking hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And so he says, you have been oppressed You have been harassed, but all that's going to flip around and the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God. All of this must have seemed like a far-fetched fantasy to people living in a very broken world. And then we get to Zechariah chapter 9. And he starts to tell us how this redemption is going to happen, how this restoration is going to happen. In the first part of the chapter, he talks about how God will uh, bring judgment upon the nations who have harassed them. And then we get to Zechariah 9.9. And this is the prequel to the triumphal entry. So if you would, turn to Zechariah chapter 9, same book, just a few chapters later, and it's page 797 in the Red Bible. And as I read verse 9, if it sounds familiar to you, it's because it is the verse that is quoted uh, in the triumphal entry account in the Gospel of Matthew, as we will see later. Zechariah 9, 9, saying this to a discouraged and disheartened people. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God paints this beautiful picture of restoration for Israel. And he says one of the primary ways that will be coming to you is through the coming of your king. And God says because of this, not because of your current situation, not because of the current messiness and brokenness, but because the king is coming, rejoice. Be of great joy. Sing and dance. And he, says, he doesn't only say rejoice. He says, rejoice greatly, very exceedingly. Rejoice without measure. Why? Because your king is coming. This is so important. Notice it does not say a king is coming. It does not say the king is coming. It says your king is coming. And it's such good news because the king that is coming is your king. Now, that's only good news if he's a good king, right? And so what kind of king is he? Well, here it tells us that he is a righteous king. You see, Israel had a lot of unrighteous kings. That's why they were cast into exile, because their kings did not follow the Lord. But here's the thing. Even the most righteous king that Israel had was still a very unrighteous king. You know, their best king was King David and then King Solomon kind of... They were both very unrighteous people, full of adultery, murder, conspiracy. They were wicked and yet they were the best kings that Israel had. But here he said, "Rejoice, because I am going to bring to you your perfect, righteous king. A king that has no corruption in his heart, no corruption in his decisions, no corruption in his ways. He is 100% righteous all the time and you can trust him." Not only that, but Zechariah said, "Your coming king, the king to whom you belong, is a saving king." Now, the original audience probably was thinking primarily of the countries that were around them and oppressing them. But as we read throughout the scriptures, what we find out is our enemies are actually greater than just that. That that our enemy is Satan, who leads us away from God, as he did with Israel. He deceives us into self-destructive sin and then accuses us and shames us so that we run even farther away from God. Not only is Satan our enemy, but so is sin. From birth, we are prisoners of sin we can't stop sinning and our sin stands as a billboard before a holy god broadcasting our guilt not only is satan our enemy not only is sin our enemy but god is our enemy not because god is evil but because we are evil because god is good Because of God's goodness, he must punish the evil within us. He must punish our sin. And in that way, we stand as enemies of God. And yet the same God who says, who says, I will punish your sin, is the same God who says, I'm sending a king to save. Rejoice greatly. His salvation is not only personal, it's also global. Look at verse 10 with me. says, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Yes, we need personal salvation. We need a king to save us. But even more than that, we long for a king that will save all the, the whole world, that will redeem the brokenness of this world. And that's what verse 10 promises, that the coming king will have dominion over all the earth and usher in a time of total peace and prosperity for all nations. The reasons for great rejoicing in the king continues. Verse 11 says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless Here we get a hint of how this coming king is going to bring salvation, that it's going to be through the blood of the covenant. We will talk more about that later. But it says here that through this blood of the covenant, you will be set free. You will be set free from Satan. You'll be set free from sin. You'll be set free from the consequences of your sin, which is death. And all of this is ushered in by the coming of this promised king. Verse 16, says, on that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewel of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And so it's saying when the king comes, you, his people, will be his treasured possession like a jewel in the crown. You will shine brightly in a dark world. You are precious to him. Verse 17 continues, it says, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. The answer is endless. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Can you see why the desolate, desperate, and discouraged people were told to rejoice greatly? Because the king, their hope, their salvation was coming, riding on a donkey. And he would make all the sad things of the world come untrue and make everything right again. When I was growing up, I was the youngest of five kids, and my dad uh, traveled a lot for his job, Uh, sometimes domestic, sometimes international. And when he went overseas, a lot of times he'd be gone for two or three weeks. And I would be asking my mom, when is dad coming home? When is dad coming home? When is dad coming home? And she'd say, you know, five days, four days, three days, and I would just count down the days and the hours till dad was coming home. And so when the day would arrive, uh, my mom and I would often drive to the airport to go get my dad. And at that time, you could just go right up to the gate. It's far different today, but you could go right up to the gate and sit down. And I remember sitting there kind of looking over this air vent, you know, the round air vents that blow air, and and just watching the planes land and roll by the gate and wondering, is my dad on that plane? Nope. Is my dad on that plane? Nope. Nope. And then finally, a plane would pull in and and you would see the plane there and they would hook up is it the what's it called not the jetway what's that called was it it is jetway okay jet bridge something like that you know what i'm talking about they would hook it up to the plane right and then it would take forever for anyone to come out it's like what are they doing in there right but then slowly people would start trickling out right that's not my dad that's not my dad that's my dad and so i would position myself so i could look down the jetway. And my dad is, is a taller guy. And so finally, I would see at the very end, my dad was coming. And, and so I'd let these people pass by. And as soon as, he, as soon as he cleared the crowd, I would run up to him. And he'd drop his bags. And he'd pick me up. And he'd hug me. And it was so glorious. And then he would, he would reach down into his bag. And he'd unzip the side zipper. And he'd pull out a, a, a gift. Sometimes it was just like airplane peanuts, which as a kid, I loved those. Were, I still love them. They're fantastic. Sometimes it would just be like those little, you know, wings that you put on your, on your shirt, something like that. Sometimes if he went to another country, it would, be, it would be a toy from that country. But he'd hug me and he'd pull out these charms, not 10,000 charms, but some charms, and he would give them to me. And, and then I'd hold my dad's hand and we'd walk out of the airport, get in our car, drive home, And all was right again. The prequel to Palm Sunday is Zechariah chapter 9. And it tells us, the people of God, that the plane is coming. The king is landing. And get this, he is your king. And he is coming for you. And he comes bringing Gifts. He comes bringing 10,000 charms of joy and of salvation and of peace and of so much more. But the greatest gift he gives to us is himself because he comes to dwell with us and to be with us because we belong to him, our king. A couple hundred years pass after the time of Zechariah. Several of the prophecies in Zechariah come true. The temple is built. The walls to the city is built. The the city is rebuilt. The the conquering surrounding countries are, are conquered by Alexander the Great. And yet, here we are 500 years later, and they are still waiting for the king, for their savior king, who they long for. And that leads us to Matthew chapter 21. So if you could flip to Matthew chapter 21, It is page 826, if you're in the Red Bible, Matthew chapter 21. So we have, again, the triumphal entry prequel, which we saw in Zechariah chapter 9. Now we have the triumphal entry fulfill, okay? Speaking of Jesus and his disciples, Matthew 21, verse 1. I think we're going to go through verse 9 here. Matthew 21, 1 says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Pause there for a minute. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies identifying the future coming Messiah, Christ, and King. Many of those prophecies would be completely outside of the Messiah's control in a human way. For example, we are told that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. No one gets to choose where they're born. We were told that he would come up out of Egypt, which he did as a child, and that when he was dying, that they would have clothes, his clothes would be gambled for. All of those came true. All of those were outside of his control. He didn't go around trying to check off the prophecies. He just fulfilled them. But this prophecy is different. Unlike any other prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus is actually orchestrating the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus stops the parade towards Jerusalem, turns to his disciples and says, go get me a donkey. Go get me a donkey. Now that happens in a miraculous way. They go, they find a donkey, they say, my Lord needs it. The guy's like, okay, go ahead and take it. But nonetheless, Jesus is orchestrating the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter nine. And the reason why he is doing this is because he is making an announcement. He is telling everyone around, I am that king. I am the prophesied Messiah. I am the one you have been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. That is me. I don't know if you noticed, but today we started using ushers uh, as we get to the busy season of the church year. Uh, it's Scott Jansen, and, 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 and they're, told, they're told when you get here, put on a, a lanyard that says usher on it, right? And putting on this lanyard that says usher gives them certain authority. It makes them somebody, someone who can help you find a seat, someone who can give you information, but also someone who with authority can nicely say, please scoot over a little bit, make room for some other folks, Right? By putting on this lanyard, they get this authority. Now, it's probably going to go to Scott's head, so don't don't let that happen. But that lanyard means something. A donkey means something far more. Jesus stopped the parade. He said, go get me a donkey. The disciples knew why he was doing this. The people in the crowds knew what this meant. This meant Jesus was finally publicly pronouncing his kingship, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that they have been waiting for for thousands of years. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty audacious claim. And so how did the people respond? And remember, these people were following Jesus. They had seen and heard his teaching and his miracles. They'd also experienced it. They believed that Yahweh was the Lord. They were headed to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And so in verse 8, we read this. It says, most of the crowd, not all, but most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Those branches were palm branches, which was a national symbol for Israel. So it would be as if you had American flags and were waving them around. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means, oh, Lord, save. And so this is a people crying out for salvation, a people who believe that Jesus is the promised king from Zechariah chapter 9. And indeed, he was. But how was he carrying salvation? How would he bring salvation? Well, it would be in a very, very peculiar way, a way that was alluded to in the Zechariah 9 passage that's quoted here in Matthew. Verse 5 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, Your king is coming to you. That's not so weird, but then this is humble. That word humble can also mean lowly or afflicted. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You most kings win through military might. This king is going to win through humble pie. He does not roll in the town with a warhorse, but on a donkey. Not in a Mercedes, but on a moped. And the key to our king's victory, the secret of our salvation, is not the highness of our king, but the lowness of our king, the humility of our king, a king who humbled himself to leave the throne room of God above to come into this world to live amongst his filthy but beloved peasants who humbled himself to come and to teach and to heal and to love the people of this world. This king humbled himself even further By showering his servants with compassion and mercy. And in his humility, he was willing to take on our sin and our shame and our filth and our guilt. And with that, to endure the punishment we deserve, the just judgment of God. And what did that just judgment of God look like? Well, we got a hint back in Zechariah. Zechariah 9, verse 11, if you remember, it said this. As for you, because of the blood... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. This Zachariah king would save us by being slain for us. It would not be the blood of bulls and goats. He himself would provide the covenantal blood that was needed to pay for our sin and to save us unto God by dying in our place on the cross. But that's not all. On the third day, he rose again, triumphant over death, to give us newness of life today and forevermore. He saved us from our sin. He saved us from Satan. He saved us from the wrath of God that we deserve. But he also saved us unto himself to enjoy him and to be with him forever. And so let me ask you, friends, have you cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, have you cried out, Lord, save me, to this long-awaited king? Are you free? Are you born again? Have you looked to the humble king mounted on a donkey for your salvation? Have you trusted in the blood, the blood of the king, the blood of Jesus, the blood that cleanses, cleanses you of all of your sin? If so, rejoice greatly. Your savior king has come for you. But if you have not trusted in this king, let me ask, why not? The long-awaited king has come. Believe in him, trust in him, be saved in him, and enjoy him. Because he has told us that all who trust in him will be saved. And so we have the triumphal entry prequel in Zechariah chapter 9, in which God says, rejoice greatly, right? The king is coming with salvation. Then we have the triumphal entry, fulfill, in Matthew chapter 21, in which Jesus orchestrates the donkey so that he can proclaim, "Your King has arrived." But then we have the triumphal entry sequel in Romans, and sorry, in Revelations chapter 19. I'm going to say something. It's going to take your thinking cap to hear it. I'll say it twice. But what if the triumphal entry fulfill in Matthew 21 is a prequel? to the final and greater triumphal entry sequel. Let me say that again. What if the triumphal entry fulfilled in Matthew 21 is is a prequel to the final and greater triumphal entry sequel? Friends, as great as salvation is in Jesus, as great as the salvation is that he has purchased for us on the cross, there has to be more to the story. God promises us things that we do not yet have. God promises worldwide peace and prosperity and dominion. God promises us more than personal salvation. He promises redemption of the entire world. This is the tension we face on a daily on a daily moment. The brokenness of this world. Yes, the king has come and joyfully he has saved us. But there's no way the king is finished. He can't be finished. There is too much misery in this world that he promises to eradicate. Hasn't he promised a world with no more school shootings? No more broken families? No more wars between nations and no more children dying in the womb? Hasn't he promised that? Don't we want that? We long for it. We long for a new heavens and a new earth with no more crying and no more pain. It had been promised to us in Zechariah chapter 9. But it only comes through the triumphal entry sequel. You see, one day the king promised in Zechariah we'll make another triumphal entry, a final triumphal entry, one not so humble and not so meek. And we read about it in Revelation chapter 19. So if you would go ahead and flip to Revelation chapter 19. By the way, this is your first time here. We usually don't flip this much, but it's page 1040 in the Red Bible, Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 11 with me. Says, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, a war horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, meaning it is King Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or jewels. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The armies of heaven followed their king, Jesus, making a final triumphal entry to clean house to purify the world. And what is the result of that? Look one more chapter over to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses one through five. This is the result of that final triumphal entry. Verse one, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, with all of its brokenness, all of its sorrow, all of its pain had passed away. And the sea, which represents chaos, was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then one of the most glorious verses in all of the Bible, verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. You know why? Because the king has triumphed. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the king has triumphed. For the former things have passed away, because the king has triumphed. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true." Most commentaries point out that we live in an age of opportunity, a sliver of time between the donkey and the horse, between two triumphal entries. And once the white horse comes and we don't know when it will come, this sliver of opportunity is going to vanish. And so let me ask you, what will you choose? You can receive the salvation of King Jesus who rides in on a donkey now, or you will know the wrath of King Jesus when he comes in on a horse later. If you call on Jesus to conquer you now, he will bring you a peace that you cannot lose. But if you wait on Jesus to conquer you later, he will bring a war that you cannot win. Here is my plea because tomorrow is not promised. We were reminded that painfully this week. Cry out for triumphal King Jesus. Shout out Hosanna. Say, oh, save King Jesus, because as Romans tells us, everyone who sincerely calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, even you. Let me end with this. Uh, In my house, uh, attached to the wall, we have a rectangular plate, and on this rectangular plate, there it is, there's a little port, okay? And one day, my son asked me, he says, dad, what is that thing? And I said, well, son, uh, back in the old days, um, we used to have to plug our phones into the wall. And, and this is where we plug our phones, and you can see, like, he's trying to understand this, right? And I'm like, yeah, we, we actually had a phone with a cord, and the cord would plug into the wall, and then we would have to sit in this spot by this port to talk on the phone. And uh, you, could learn, you could see very quickly, he was like... Um, okay, this doesn't pertain to me, right? Like he just turns and he walks away. He's like, this isn't the world I live in. Like we don't have to be attached to a wall anymore. He's just thinking of the misery of like, you have to stay in the same place and talk. That sounds awful, right? But it's no longer the world he lives in. So he's like, you know what? Okay, I don't care. And he walks away and continues living. Christian, there is coming a day of the new heavens and the new earth And if for some reason in that new heavens and new earth there are books from this world and you come across this word death, you'll probably say, what is that? As if someone maybe tried to explain it to you, like death is when you stop living and you're hearing this and you're puzzled and you don't quite understand what's going on and then you read words like crying and mourning and pain. And not only do you not understand, you probably just turn and walk away because you would quickly understand that such things are no, rele- no longer relevant in eternal life. Because all of them are a thing of the past and not a part of the world that you will live in forever and ever and ever. You know, I love 1 Corinthians 15 when it says, if in Christ." We have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then comes the end of time when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then shall come the day where the saying shall be, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when I heard what happened in Nashville, as I heard more about what happened in Nashville, as I learned more about my classmates that were a part of the tragedy and the grieving in Nashville, I wept, I prayed, And I cried out, come, Lord Jesus. Because I know when Jesus comes again in his final triumphal entry, in the sequel to the first triumphal entry, not only will our salvation and redemption reach completion, but so will the redemption of the entire world. Rejoice greatly, children of God. Shout aloud, Christians. Behold, your king has come once, and he is coming again. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that you are true to your promises, that what you promised in Zechariah chapter 9, you brought to fulfillment, at least in part in Matthew chapter 21, where you brought your king in, and they shouted, Hosanna, and he brought salvation to us, his people, And yet, God, we also long for the day when the triumphal entry will happen again, when Christ comes and he will extend dominion over all of the earth, and there will be no more crying, no more sadness, no more pain, and no more death. We long for that day. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.